Welcome to See Generally, the University of Pennsylvania Law Review's podcast. My name is Kristen Marino, and I'm the media editor for Volume 171. Today, we welcome Professor Elizabeth Pullman to the podcast. Professor Pullman is a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School, as well as the co-director of the Institute for Law and Economics. Professor Pullman studies corporate law and governance, startups, venture capital, and entrepreneurship. Her articles have been routinely selected by scholars in the field as among the top 10 best corporate and securities articles. She is also the co-author of the casebook, Business Organizations, A Contemporary Approach, and the co-editor of the research handbook on corporate purpose and personhood. Professor Pullman also serves on the Corporate Laws Committee of the American Bar Association and is a research member of the European Corporate Governance Institute. Before joining Penn, Professor Pullman taught at Loyola Law School, Los Angeles, was a visiting professor at the University of Sydney and UC Berkeley School of Law, and was a fellow at the Rock Center for Corporate Governance at Stanford Law School. She also practiced at Latham and Watkins and served as a clerk for Judge Raymond C. Fisher on the Ninth Circuit. She earned both her BA and JD from Stanford University. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Pullman. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Of course. So first, I'd love to hear a little about how you became interested in corporate law and your specific focus areas. Well, who knows, but I think I got interested in corporate law for a variety of reasons. I had many interests growing up, and among them was entrepreneurship. In my early childhood, I grew up in a family business. I even tried a bit of entrepreneurship myself when I was a kid. I also have an interest in culture and society and organizations, and I studied anthropology in undergrad. That was in the 90s at Stanford, and I stayed in Palo Alto and worked in a little startup, eventually became interested in career shift and either going to business school. I thought about an anthropology PhD to become an academic or law school. And those were the kind of considerations or paths that I was thinking about. And when I was thinking about law school, it was with maybe the hope of being a law professor. And of course, that's the path that I went and was then naturally interested in business law. I think corporations are some of the most fascinating organizations in society and impactful in a a variety of ways. So before you started teaching, you did practice at Latham. And so I know you mentioned a little bit about thinking about becoming a law professor during law school, but Why did you ultimately decide to pursue an academic career rather than continue on the corporate law path of practice? Yeah. Well, law teaching had always been my hope. I have a parent who was a legal academic. Seemed like a good path for me too, but in a different subject area of interest, business law. At the same time, I wanted practice experience. And I figured that if I loved practicing as a lawyer, I'd stay in practice. And I did really enjoy it. And I thought really highly of the firm. And I still do. In many ways, I think I could be very happy still in practice. But when an opportunity arose to try to transition to law teaching, I decided to pursue it. And I'm so glad I did because I really love what I do. So one of your main areas of research is corporate purpose, rights, and governance. And I know in that space, you recently wrote a working paper about ESG, the making and meaning of ESG. So what initially sparked that project? Great question. I've been listening to many conversations and in many discussions about ESG. And I noticed that there were a few things that I thought were missing from the discussion, maybe at a higher level of discussion in some sense, because I've seen a lot of research papers that get at more narrow questions that are very important in the debate. But it occurred to me that many people 
that were participating in these discussions and even practicing in these areas in some instances might not have a sense of where the term came from. And I was also at the same time noticing all of these interesting ways that the term ESG was getting used, even things that sounded kind of funny to me, like, oh, that's so ESG or that's not ESG, which was funny, especially if you understood where the term came from and how different that was as a usage in a sense than what had originally started. Uh, So I wanted to work on this project that would do three things. One, explain the history of where the term ESG came from. Two, examine the different ways that term is now being used. And three, really look at the consequences, both the promise and the perils of putting E and S and G together, because many of the discussions today that are happening, it seems, are digging deeper or criticizing some aspects of the term itself in the sense that it's putting together E, S, and G in a way that gives rise to both some that are embracing it as an umbrella term for many things and others who would criticize it. So that's what I wanted to do in the paper was tackle those three things. So can you tell us a little bit about how that term was initially developed and why those three terms were stuck together in that way initially? Yeah, it's a really fascinating history and you can read the working paper for more details, but the real kind of way of pinpointing it, I think, because it is a different term than some other terms like corporate social responsibility or sustainability that have their own histories. ESG came out of a process, an initiative that came out of the United Nations. And when you look back at the history of the United Nations, there was a really interesting time in the 1990s in which the United Nations itself was shifting in its approach under then Secretary General Kofi Annan to engage more in thinking about collaborations or partnerships or how to involve business in being a solution to some of the bigger picture issues that the United Nations was focused on. And in 1999, he gave a talk at Davos that was focused on his view of the issues that would come up if the path continued of globalization without addressing for many people how fragile and vulnerable their situation was around the world. And From that, he launched the Global Compact, the United Nations, in the year 2000. And shortly after that, there were some individuals at the United Nations under Kofi Annan that worked to launch another initiative called Who Cares Wins. And that initiative did something different than the Global Compact, which is a voluntary compact for corporations to make pledges towards pursuing various principles. Instead, what the Who Cares Wins initiative was aimed at was involving the financial industry itself in discussions around what became the term ESG. And in 2004, after one of the first major convenings, the group launched this report from the Who Cares Wins initiative, and it used the term ESG. And it did so very purposely and explains in the report that they were choosing to use that term instead of some other terms out there that might be less precise in some way or have other connotations and meanings like corporate social responsibility or citizenship or these things. And they defined ESG by environmental, social, and governance. And it specifically used that idea in the way of a concept of understanding that term as being one about factors for investment analysis. But it did not give a precise definition beyond 
that sense. It gave examples of what might fall under E, S, and G. And then later in my research, I found that there was discussions around the time or from people involved in some of the strategic considerations of putting those things together in that order. But some of that came later in a sense. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that and look forward to reading your full paper. So how did ESG kind of grow from being that term used in one report to being a widespread focus in corporate law? And have you noticed any specific obstacles in achieving that growth? Yeah, the people that were involved in this initiative, I think, were very savvy and others in other working groups under the United Nations. There's one called the United Nations Environment Program Finance Initiative, UNEP-FI. And they had an asset management working group that shortly after the first Who Cares Wins initiative report commissioned the international law firm Freshfields to do a study analyzing whether integration of ESG issues into investment policy was voluntarily permitted, legally permitted, or hampered by law and regulation. And that's really getting at what they saw as one of the things that could be an obstacle, which was the perception that fiduciary duty constraints would prevent some asset managers and others from thinking that they could consider ESG issues in their investment analysis. And so they launched this report, Freshfield's report, that analyzed the issue and came to the conclusion that the links between ESG factors and financial performance were increasingly being recognized. And so integrating ESG considerations into the investment analysis was clearly permissible in the view of the firm that analyzed this. And they said even arguably required in jurisdictions. And I think the Freshfields report was anticipating potential obstacles, yet still this has been a heavily debated area, but it was an important development that happened in this timeline. Another one was that UNEP-FI and the UN Global Compact launched something else called the Principles for Responsible Investment, PRI. And again, that was a group of leading institutions jointly engaged with the UN to try to push forward a larger project of understanding the investment implications of ESG. So there were a number of kind of developments early on in this timeline that I think really helped spread the term, uh, engage a broader group of people around the world and institutions. They were very thoughtful, too, about spreading this to the various actors within the system. And it took some years, but we also started to see some of the world's largest asset managers like BlackRock and others starting to speak the language of ESG, in a sense, and offer ESG funds. And by that point, it had really become quite global and mainstream in usage. And so we see something that, yes, exactly could have been just something, a term used in a report that over a course of years with a real effort of many people around the world became a term that was widely known. I see. So with that widespread increase in the use of ESG, did you find that people were using it? in the same way? Or were there a lot of different usages that you discovered in your research? And if so, what were some of those differences? So in many ways, I think a fair characterization is that it started through the Who Cares Wins initiative as a term that was referring to factors for investment analysis. And very closely related to that concept is an understanding of ESG as a means or factors that would be considered for risk management. 
Sometimes even in the risk management discourse, you can see that it's a little bit different than the idea of factors for investment analysis, because some scholars have traced that in practice on the ground looks like companies engaging in conversations with stakeholders and others in a set of ESG practices around stakeholder engagement that becomes risk management, which is a different thing than factors for investment analysis, although they're related. But then you see usages of the term ESG that are actually quite different. And some people would put this in terms of value versus values, whether you know ESG is something that's a factor, a set of factors for investment analysis in the pursuit of long-term risk-adjusted value, or if it's something that's really, in a sense, some people would say like a synonym for corporate social responsibility or other terms like sustainability. And you could parse that further, but you can see those various usages in the world. And in recent years, I think you even see another kind of category of ways people use the term. And that is one that expresses, in a sense, an ideological preference. And that could be perceived as positive or negative. Some people might use the term ESG to refer to kind of what they see as doing something beyond the pursuit of profit or consideration of stakeholders or various other ways they might use this. Like, oh, if you want something that is ESG or or not. And then we've seen a backlash as well that I think it's fair to characterize in a sense, this, this area's ideological preference is what's being expressed, whether that's people preferring it or not preferring it. So which of those conceptions do you think is most accurate? Or do you think they could all be accurate depending on the situation? Most important, I think, is understanding the various ways that people are using this term because it has, well, one, regulatory and liability considerations now, especially with recent developments that we've been seeing. But also on a deeper level, I think it's possible that people will just be talking past each other and it gives rise to this possibility of politicizing a term when you have these different usages. So most important, I think, is understanding the different ways people might be using this term. And it helps, I think, to have a meta conversation in a sense so that we can see these different ways and what people might mean, because then you can engage in, I think, the real work of trying to get at the tougher questions. Maybe it's okay to have all of these various ways of referring to something, but we need more detail and labeling or explanation so that we know whether investors are really choosing to invest in one thing or another and what kind of trade-offs people want to be making. With all these different meanings of the term, do you know, or support any proposals to improve the situation besides, you know, obviously your research trying to put all of the different meanings in one place? And if so, do you think any of those reforms are better than others? The third part of the paper, the making and meaning of ESG, discusses these. And it first discusses what is the consequence of putting E, S, and G together in detail, both why it succeeded by doing that. And I think that is because putting E, S, and G together in the way that it was created a flexible term that created a big tent that could be used across different geographies, which different regions might have different issues that are more of concern than others under the labels E, S, and G. Also flexible across time, because as we learn more, for example, you might think that E is climate, but as you learn more, you might realize that biodiversity loss or water issues are also very important. And it might also vary by company or industry, which of these aspects are most important. So you've created this very flexible moniker, in a sense, across time and geography and substance. 
And it was a term that also was a fresh term at the time that wasn't using the kind of lingo of corporate social responsibility, et cetera, that already had in some sense some baggage of views. I think that helped it succeed to what it is now, a term that's widely used, known trillions of dollars have been invested under a label of ESG. But it's also at core part of the difficulty, because when you put E, S, and G together and you haven't worked out the trade-offs and the precise meaning of what issues would go under and whether or not they really did create value alignment, it's a term that then is very subject to critique. And it becomes very hard to empirically show, for example, financial impact, et cetera, if the term means different things across time, et cetera. And so I think the implication is that we have this term now. It's been widely used. Trillions of dollars have been invested under a label of ESG, but people are using it different ways. And in some ways, that's good. It's created a space for people to discuss really important issues. And the flexibility can be an asset in in many situations. But there's also this backlash and also fair critiques, I think, of some of these consequences and things that would need to be worked out. So people have come up, as you said, with a lot of different proposals. Some people would say, put extra letters in there. And some people would say, take one of those letters out, like, gee, that never made sense or something like that, which of course, there were reasons why these were put together, but people might have different views on how to change it now. Some people have proposed that we get rid of it altogether. So we really see a wide variety of proposals in the space. And the last part of the paper collects, brings together these threads of conversation that are happening in the scholarly literature and in the real world of of practice. And the paper doesn't take a firm position on this. But in some sense, I think that's why the history is so illuminating, because you can see there aren't easy answers to this question. There was a reason why this group created a new term, and it does various things. I think the critiques that we see now are not fatal, but they're significant challenges right now. So I don't know that I take a position on which of these various proposals, if any, are the best. But I think that's where the conversation is going and should go. And that's why I'd want to do a project like this is to create more focus around those questions. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's so interesting. So I know another big area of your research is relating to startups and venture capital. And you have another working paper called Startup Failure, which is a sequel to one of your older papers, Startup Governance. So can you tell us a little bit about how those articles are related? So I write in one line of my research about corporate purpose, personhood, corporate law and governance. And then in this other line of my work of corporate law is a focus on startups. And the paper that I wrote called Startup Governance is about what happens to successful venture-backed startups over time in terms of their governance. And it aims to show that a venture-backed startup, as it continues in its life cycle, if it's succeeding or continuing, it will continue to give rise to potential conflicts that are both vertical and horizontal in the governance structure. And that's a story about what happens to this very few number of startups, actually, the ones that like succeed enough to make it some years, it's hard to even get venture capital funding for many new ventures in the first place. So we're already talking about a very small number. And then beyond that, the ones that actually survive are somewhat rare in the bigger picture because most startups fail. So startup governance, I thought was an important contribution because there's a significant literature on the governance of venture-backed startups. And I thought there, there were some key things that were missing in that discussion. And that's why I wrote startup governance. But 
I had always gone into this project on failure too, because this is what happens to most startups. And most scholars tend to focus on the successes. There's a fair bit of literature on IPOs and M&A, and that literature tends to focus on the successes or on M&A, a particular situation, especially around a case from Delaware known as Trados. But that leaves so much more to discuss about what happens to most venture-backed startups that fail. That makes sense. And if most startups fail, then there should be more research done about startup failures. So I know you start your paper by describing a little bit about why bankruptcy law doesn't sufficiently address these problems. Can you explain a little bit about that? So most companies, I think in general, don't use formal bankruptcy, but it's even more rare for venture-backed startups to use formal bankruptcy. And I think that's an interesting question for people to consider. You know, if you have most startups failing and very few using bankruptcy, why is that? And in the paper, I discuss a variety of reasons. Um, One is that the capital structure of venture-backed startups doesn't tend to push towards using a formal bankruptcy process. And in some sense, that's endogenous. Like the cap structure is designed in a way that it will not likely go to bankruptcy because that is not a useful fit in some sense for financing high-risk innovative ventures that take some time to develop. So most venture capitalists would invest through a convertible preferred stock and the founder, entrepreneurs, employees, et cetera, would have stock options or founder stock, et cetera, some form of common stock or options. And some startups take debt, but there's a specialty area of debt in a sense of of venture lending and venture debt that is complementary to venture capital investment and is not usually a significant portion of the financing. And those uh, lenders are very sophisticated in the space and have relationships with the venture capital firms. And they also tend to take warrants as well, which is a form of option. So you have a cap structure usually that just doesn't push formally towards bankruptcy. And then on top of that, as I point out, startups are quintessential like melting ice cubes, but not only are they melting ice cubes, they're melting ice cubes in a system of repeat players that have reasons to not try to get back the last dollar from each other or have sharp elbows in this process if they're going to be other venture deals to invest in alongside of each other. So for a variety of reasons that I explained in the paper, the cap structure doesn't push towards it. Most startups don't end up having significant debt obligations of the type that would push towards formal bankruptcy. And then they're melting ice cubes where the most important people, the founders, the employees can leave quickly. They're usually not locked in. And then they're in a system of repeat players. Why did you call them melting ice cubes? Oh, that's not a term that I created, but I think bankruptcy scholars are familiar with that. But the concept is that once you know the startup is in distress or a firm generally, they can be melting ice cubes because when the assets are, in a sense, locked in and people can leave, the value changes quickly. And so we would say melting ice cube. <laughs> I see. That's fun. Okay. So what are some of the more effective ways then of dealing with failed startups if bankruptcy isn't one of them? So in the paper, I explain, as we discussed, like why I think startup tend not to use formal bankruptcy. I look at some exceptions to when they do, but that's still, when you look at real formal bankruptcy filings, 
I think suggests that it's the exception, not the rule. That's not what most companies are doing. And so that leads to this question, then what are they doing instead? Because we have this big number of failed startups. They're not using the formal bankruptcy system in most situations. And I don't know that I would use the word what's most effective in a sense, but I guess you could. We have a system, I would argue, a way of dealing with large numbers of venture-backed startup failures. And I lay them out systematically in the paper. The first would be M&A sales. And this can really vary what the structure is. This could be a purchase of the equity of the startup, either by a stock purchase or a merger, or it could be an asset purchase. There's different ways you could structure these deals. But I should step back and say, when I'm talking about startup failure, I define that term in the paper for a working purpose of studying this, which is what I mean by that is a situation in which the company has some type of end that is not producing financial return to all of the participants in the cap structure. So the investors might not be getting paid back entirely, or they get paid back, but people that had common stock aren't getting anything, et cetera. So I would label that for purposes of this paper in this term of a startup failure, but I'm not actually saying that we should all think of them as failures. And in fact, these startups might say, we created something of value. We changed the industry. We did various things that had lots of value. So I just want to clarify that when I'm talking about what they're doing. They might find themselves in a position where they realize they're not going to have that big exit. So that's the kind of scenario that I'm talking about. And one of the first things that a company might do is try to raise more money or try to find some way around this. But if they realize they can't, then they might be looking for an M&A sale like I discussed. And that's usually the first best option if they can get it. There's even little marketplaces now that have sprung up trying to find buyers for, in a sense, struggling or failed startups. So that would be the first one. But then there's a whole host of other things that could happen. Maybe the company can't find an M&A deal when they're trying to sell. Another possibility is something known as an acquihire transaction in which the buyer is really focused on, in a sense, hiring a team of talent. And it may not be all of the employees, but it's you know more than one individual that they're trying to, in a sense, acquire to come over to the acquiring company. Another possibility is that if they can't get an M&A deal or even an acquihire, they may be facing the difficult situation of they're effectively just trying to get rid of the startup or liquidate it. And they don't have to use formal bankruptcy. There's other options. States have something known as assignment for the benefit of creditors or ABCs, and those are state insolvency procedures. Sometimes there isn't even enough value in the startup or a ability to do an ABC and you'll see kind of voluntary dissolutions that are basically wind downs. Sometimes you see turnarounds or even other forms of transactions, but those are the major ones. And in your research, have you seen any particular problems with using any of those mechanisms? Well, there's things you could say about each of them, about how well they work in these various situations. For example, ABC laws vary widely across the state. So some states have an ABC procedure that would be very difficult to use for a venture-backed startup. It's just not worth it in a sense, whereas other states have very favorable ABC laws. There's things to be said about that, but I think the bigger picture is the argument that I make in the paper is that we can understand the system of dealing with, in a sense, failed startups as creating certain efficiencies because both law and the culture in the space are facilitating the flow of failed startups to the next thing. 
through these processes. That is, acquire transaction in many ways is giving a soft landing to the entrepreneurs and maybe some of the engineers and others. And that's really important to the system because in a sense, it lowers the risk and cost to the individuals in trying their hand at entrepreneurship by knowing that even if they fail, they may get a soft landing they may not have reputational impact. And there's some aspect of this that's like optimal production in a sense that it fosters serial entrepreneurship. It also helps the investors themselves in a sense know that ex ante, they may be able to recoup some of their investment and it helps attract entrepreneurs and talent to start these investments that may be lucrative in the best case scenario. So really what we have is a system that's facilitating the flow of talent and technological know-how on a repeat basis for serial entrepreneurship and investment. That's really interesting. So what problems or developments do you think will impact the future of how we're dealing with startup failures or maybe how it would impact your theory about how the startup failures impact the law and culture of venture capitalism and startups and entrepreneurship? Uh, I'd like to pick back up the previous question you asked too, about this system that we have in a sense of fostering this flow and say that I think there's a real concern that for the most part, you could understand this as a good thing about our system and actually part of what enables the United States to have a vibrant venture capital ecosystem. At the same time, I think there is a real concern that I've grown more concerned about as I've studied this, which is that venture capital and venture-backed startups have been an area that has been criticized for lacking diversity. It's also been an area in which we've seen some salient examples of what some might call like problematic cultures or even illegal conduct and activity coming out of startups. It's a real concern, I think, that if we give a lot of second chances to people and soft landings and facilitate that, it may perpetuate also some of the issues in the system. And for some, even if they aren't a problematic founder, et cetera, but the fact that they're getting funding again before somebody else is in a sense included in this ecosystem in the first place to get their first round of venture capital financing for a startup is a significant concern. I think the research I've been doing on failure highlights how important it is to address those issues. So there's a number of initiatives and efforts that have been going on in the venture capital ecosystem. But I think more could be done. To your question about development and how the system is is dealing with them, another thing that's been really interesting to watch is the rise, of course, of unicorn startups, which are startups that have had a round of private financing in which the company has been valued at a billion dollars or more. And there's some caveats to say about what that really means because these are preferred stock financings that have certain protective provisions, et cetera. But that's what basically the term unicorn means. And now we have a bunch of years in which there's been a lot of venture capital flowing into startups, including some really large ones that have achieved larger valuations and some large rounds of financing. And there's a real issue of what's going to happen with a lot of these startups, uh, especially some of these larger ones when they fail and can they navigate, in a sense, a landing. I think we have a system that is pretty resilient, but we may see more use of formal bankruptcy for some because ABCs may not be a good fit for some really large startups, et cetera. So yeah, we're in a really interesting time. We also have different types of investors that have come into the space 
besides the kind of traditional venture capital firms. We have mutual funds and sovereign wealth funds and private equity players and others, and they may be more apt to litigate. They may not be part of this kind of culture of like repeat players as much that want to facilitate soft landings, et cetera. So we may see some more changes in the space as we go forward. Interesting. So can you talk a little bit about that culture of repeat players? Is it on the funding side as well as the actual entrepreneurship and business, you know, business management ownership side? So there are venture capital firms that specialize in this venture investing. And there's a number of entrepreneurs that in a sense are repeat players because they may fail in a sense, multiple startups, but keep trying again and keep getting financing and try a new startup. And, And sometimes they succeed then. And not only that, they may have a startup Maybe it gets aqua hired. They go to the acquiring company. They become a tech employee at some other company. They may then later leave and join another startup or start another startup themselves. And so both on the investor side and on the entrepreneur side, you could have, in a sense, repeat players in this industry or ecosystem more broadly. I was just finding that very interesting, like the idea that you might have so many repeat players in this space. And I think we were also talking about, you know, whether there are any potential reforms or ways to address these problems that you were laying out before. And I think you touched on a few of them, but do you have any more thoughts about how we could make the situation better, always more aligning with the ideal law and culture in the space? So I think that there's a few things we could do that would maintain or promote more efficiencies in dealing with startup failures. And they fall into a few different areas. One is in corporate law itself. There's a few doctrines that become relevant when you have a venture-backed startup that's struggling. One is the insolvency line of case law. Another is this case law that I mentioned before, which often gets referred to by the term trados because of a famous case in the area, but where you have an M&A deal in which there's a conflict between the preferred shareholders and the common shareholders. And I think on the insolvency line of case law, we have evolution of the doctrine that has moved towards greater certainty around the fiduciary duties because the case law has moved away from this zone of insolvency doctrine towards insolvency as the line. But what I point out is that we don't have a clear definition of what insolvency would look like in the venture-backed startup context, which means that there could be uh, litigation from creditors asserting fiduciary claims in situations that may be a little bit hard for the, say, board members of these venture-backed startups to know exactly when they're actually at insolvency, and it could give rise to the sorts of fiduciary claims. On the kind of trados or preferred common shareholder conflict, I point out that there's been a lot written about that space, but when you understand this bigger system of startup failure and what is really going on in a sense of venture capital investors have a business model that's a power law business model. They are looking for the big hit and there will be a lot of failures and they can still have a very successful fund. And so their incentives are stemming from this business model. And that may mean that they have opportunity costs that they would prefer to get out at different times when there's a startup that's not doing well, they may do various other things because of this incentive. And you have common shareholders who have their own separate set of incentives. But together, when you understand this, you can see that 
there would be reasons why we would have aqua hire transactions, for example, because while it might not be the theoretically optimal way of handling a startup when you're trying to quote maximize for the common shareholders, because maybe not all the employees are even part of this aqua hire transaction, or maybe the startup could have held on a little bit more and tried to push for a bigger exit. You can understand in the context of what I'm discussing, the law and culture of startup failure, that this is a way out of a failed startup that maybe, you know, most people are relatively happy with the situation, even though it didn't do what the law says, in a sense, they're strictly supposed to do, which is maximize for the common. And you could argue what that means. But this is a way out of a complicated governance situation by finding soft landings for people the venture capitalists might be willing to do it, even though it might not get every last dollar back to them. But it facilitates the flow, which could also be good for their reputation of working with founders. And when they know that's going to affect their ability to get in on the next deal, that might be the hot startup. That makes sense. Yeah. And so there's a few other things that I talk about as well, not only in corporate law, but also in insolvency procedures like ABCs and even implications of antitrust. Interesting. So shifting gears a little bit, I know in addition to your research. You also serve as the co-director of the Institute for Law and Economics at Penn. Can you tell us a little bit about that institute? The Institute for Law and Economics, or ILE, is a center for corporate law, governance, business, and finance here at the University of Pennsylvania. And it was founded by the great Michael Wachter in 1980. He was a leading corporate law scholar and really luminary in the field for decades here at the law school. And the Institute is a joint initiative of the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School, the Wharton School, and the Department of Economics. The faculty co-directors are here at the law school, currently Professors Jill Fish, Lisa Fairfax, myself, and Executive Director Larry Hammermesh. And we're very active. We convene and host a variety of events, such as corporate roundtables, distinguished jurist lectures, chancery court programs, a series of ILE Wharton finance seminars the Penn NYU conference annually, and more. That's what we do. So we convene and host a variety of events, and that's often bringing together practitioners, business leaders, policymakers, judges, academics. Sometimes the events are aimed towards students as well. As co-director, what are some of your goals for the Institute? Well, I want to be a good steward. (laughs) It's been a really important institute for decades. And we do a variety of things that I think are quite important. So I just try to be a good steward. Yeah. Well, that's good. It sounds like you're doing a good job from what I've seen over the past two or so years of being at Penn. So one of the Institute's important initiatives, I know, is the Women in Business Law Initiative. And I also know that you're doing work with Delaware Law as well. And so can you talk about what challenges, especially the Women in Business Law Initiative, that the program is hoping to address and how it's been going? Sure. So the Women in Business Law Initiative was launched by ILE and it aims to promote the development and advancement of women in business law. Membership is made up of current law school students, law school alumni, members of our ILE board of advisors or their firms, and other professionals referred by these members. We're a community and a growing one. We've convened a variety of events as part of this initiative, and it really ranges from events aimed at students, such as panels with leaders in the field, discussing their career arcs, 
events on succeeding in summer jobs, transitioning to practice, and so on, as well as events for early and mid-career lawyers on allyship and various other things we've done. The initiative co-sponsored events like the Distinguished Jurist Lecture with the Honorable Karen Balahura of the Delaware Supreme Court. We've done a lot of things already, and uh, more is on the horizon. What's on the horizon over the next year semester? Well, we want to continue putting out great events that are aimed at helping people at different stages of their career and furthering that bigger mission. But we really think broadly about that with this kind of range of events that might be something like a small group discussion about something as practical as succeeding in a summer job to hosting a Delaware Supreme Court justice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Professor Pullman. Thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure.